You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. In the last episode, we discussed the progression of Alyssa's case from the years 2002 to 2006, including a lengthy call in which my father answers quite a few pressing questions, the beginning of the police investigation, and we also explore what I was up to during these years. In this episode, we will be exploring the story of a man who confessed to killing Alyssa, the continuation of the investigation into Alyssa's disappearance, as well as the assignment of two detectives from the Phoenix Police Department that will detrimentally change this case forever. This episode is going to feel a lot like episode 5 in that we are going over the timeline of this investigation. The information may feel choppy and confusing, but that's because it is. And it's important to stay in chronological order to better understand how this investigation really unfolded. Like I mentioned in the last episode, the investigation into what happened to Alyssa was finally beginning. The Phoenix Police Department began looking into leads presented by my father. My and my brother John's DNA was taken and being matched to Jane Doe's across the country. And on February 16, 2006, Detective Murphy from the Phoenix Police Department receives a voicemail from Detective Curcio with the Fort Lauderdale Homicide Department. He says that he has information regarding the Alyssa Turney case. About a week later, on February 24, 2006, Detective Murphy speaks to Detective Curcio. He informs her that in August of 2005, Thomas Heimer, an inmate serving a life sentence for murder, began writing letters to law enforcement stating that he was a serial killer. Heimer claims to have picked up Alyssa in Phoenix, Arizona in October of 2001. He states that he then took her to Georgia and killed her. At this point, Curcio is unsure of Heimer's involvement and plans to investigate further. And about nine months later, Detective Murphy receives a call from the FBI, and she is given more information about the confession. However, there's a discrepancy in the reports. In the initial report of Murphy learning about this confession, it states that Heimer picked up Alyssa in October of 2001. But this report states that she was picked up in May of 2001. The police report reads, On December 4, 2006, Eileen Jacobs and John Weir from the Federal Bureau of Investigations called me. Eileen wanted more information regarding Alyssa. A man named Thomas Heimer was claiming to have picked Alyssa up in the Phoenix area. Thomas claimed to have been at a biker bar. Thomas could not remember which one he was at. He informed Eileen that he frequented bars in Phoenix, Scottsdale, and Avondale in May of 2001. One was called Steel Horse. Another bar was possibly the candy store in Cave Creek. Another bar had the word dirty in the name. Thomas stated that he had been cruising the area. 
he found a tan, family-styled van with two double doors in the back and a sliding door. Thomas found a girl named Alyssa in the back of the van, high on drugs. Thomas hit the owner of the van in the face with brass knuckles. He and Alyssa left together and began a relationship. Prior to leaving the Phoenix area, they stole a weed whacker, a bird bath, and a bike. Thomas and Alyssa drove to Georgia in a stolen Nissan. He stated that his brother and a friend both saw Alyssa and made comments about how good-looking she was. Thomas killed Alyssa in a motel room in Georgia and cut her body up. He put her body into garbage bags and took them to an industrial area. An elderly man helped Thomas place the bags in garbage bins. He gave a ring and a necklace, which belonged to the girl he killed, believed to be Alyssa, to two different girls. The motel Alyssa and Thomas stayed in was owned by Thomas's ex-girlfriend's family. After killing Alyssa in the motel room, Thomas states that he had sex with the ex-girlfriend in that room. Eileen stated that Thomas was very good on the facts of the case as well as who may vouch for his story. Thomas wrote the friend who had seen Alyssa with Thomas. He told the friend that the FBI was going to talk to him, and he told the friend to tell the FBI whatever they wanted. The friend took the letter to the police, who then called the FBI and put the friend in touch with Eileen. Thomas remembered the time of year he picked up Alyssa as it was around his mother's birthday, which is in May. He stated that she had rubber bands in her hair. Eileen added Thomas stated he had killed 21 additional people aside from the one he was convicted on and currently serving life in prison for. Eileen needed more information regarding the jewelry Alyssa was wearing when she disappeared. She was also going to try to do a photo lineup with Thomas and include Alyssa's photograph. And after learning about the details of this confession and the ask for more information about jewelry, Detective Murphy proceeds to call my father. And it appears that he recorded this phone call, because later in the police reports, they report finding this tape in our home. This report reads, The call was transcribed as accurately as possible. Some errors or admissions may exist due to overlaps in speech and occasional unintelligible phrases. The dictation of Mike Turney is often very difficult to follow and seems to jump about rather than settling on one idea. Also, some words are pronounced incorrectly. In these cases, the word is provided phonetically without any intended correction. Please refer to the tape itself for the most accurate depiction of the conversation. And the transcription reads, Detective Murphy. Yes, Detective Murphy? Hi there, how are you doing, Mike? Ah, it's one of those days when my, whatever it is, my condition doesn't make me feel too good, but what's up? Um, well, I got a call from the FBI. They're looking into a subject out in Georgia who may have something to do with Alyssa's disappearance. He has claimed that he picked her up in May of 2001 and taken her out to Georgia. Took her to Georgia? Okay. What I was looking for was there's some indication that she might have had a ring or some necklace on. Do you know anything about that? Ring or a necklace? Uh, see, Alyssa did have a necklace, but I thought she'd taken it off, you know, the one that her boyfriend gave her. But she did wear, uh, gosh, I can't remember what it was, though. I'm trying to remember. It's the one that her, her mama gave her, or I, I gave her after her mama died. She could have had any number of them, but it was a gold chain as I remember it. I don't know if she had the amethyst one on there or what. Uh, what's the one for November? Garnet? No, no, I think it's like the brownish yellow one. Oh, topaz. No, no, Barbara hated it because she said it looked like pee. 
I think it's called, um, I don't remember what it is now. Um, is it amethyst or, or something? No, that's what February is. Whatever it is for November, like that yellowish looking colored stone. She could have had on either of those because that's the jewelry I gave her after her mother died. I passed it down to the girls when they showed responsibility for it. She could have had either of these on, you know, but then again, these girls had some jewelry. She could have had anything around her neck when she left. I'm not really sure. Okay. I was trying to remember what she had on too when you brought that up, but I don't remember seeing the jewelry Alyssa usually wore. Alyssa wore t-shirts. Okay. Like that shirt she had on in the picture. She wore similar ones like that, you know, and I had left, so I'm not really sure what she was wearing when she walked out. You know, we had our squabble, so she left, and I'm not sure what she was wearing when she left. Okay. I know what she was wearing when she got home from school that day, and I gave a description, but I'm trying to remember now in my mind. But, so, um, how do you guys follow up on this? Well, the FBI is talking to him. They're also talking to some people that might have had contact with the both of them, just to make sure that he is actually telling us the truth and not, you know, pulling our leg, leading us down the wrong route. Um, also... Is this guy from Arizona? No. He was actually passing through, and he did spend some time there. Okay, well, May is the time. Drugs. It says in the original report that she might have been into drugs at one time. Yeah, Alyssa was into the marijuana, which, again, I took away from her a number of times. But I don't think she did anything else, though, you know, that she said to me. But some of her friends told me that she had tried that uh, crystal meth or whatever that crap is they smoke out of a pipe. Yeah? I'm sorry, it's not a good day for me, detective. You're doing fine. She had experimented with some stuff, marijuana, that I did take away from her. Some of our neighbors were selling it, and again, it's another thing I did turn in because they were building a Maryville, and the people next door to me, where I used to live, were selling them. And I got pissed when Alyssa wound up with one of them. I got a picture here on one of my cameras, but of course I destroyed it, because how am I going to turn in my own daughter, you know, and get her busted? I don't do that. And do you remember anything about any rings that she might have been wearing? Let's see. What was her favorite ring? Uh, one of our favorite rings I, that she wore again, I believe, was that amethyst. Okay. I think so. I, I, I think that's the purplish-colored stone. What do they call it? Lavender-looking thing. That, again, was one of the ones from her mama, but then again, she had one with uh, little hearts all over it. She wore that one, and again, if her sister paid more attention, I could be asking her. Uh-huh. And tell them, you know, I said, do you remember what Alyssa was wearing that week? Because she did change her jewelry, and she didn't take everything with her. That's what Sarah was showing me when we went back in there. She kind of left in a hurry, so she didn't take it all with her. But she might have been wearing it, you know, because um, I did get her. It, it wasn't very expensive. I think it was like $75. It was one of those little diamond, small, little industrial diamond rings. I don't know if she was wearing that one or not. I'm sorry, I could be better. Again, that day I could tell you what she was wearing when we were there. She was wearing the amethyst, you know, because every now and then we get to fighting and I would say, you know, your mama wouldn't want us to do this. And I just don't know what to do, honey. You know, I don't have all the answers for everything you're coming up with. All I do know is you're not heading in the right direction. And this boyfriend you got, honey, I mean, if he's going to yell and scream at you and call you stupid and have these violent fits that he has, you don't want to be around that. What was her boyfriend's name? John, uh, I'm trying to remember his last name. It should be in the reports there somewhere. Because I gave them, you know, I had a security camera in our house. And, you know, again, I was watching Alyssa a lot because she was always talked into doing stupid things. But I had one on the carport one time, you know, they had a fight and he got all pissed off and jumped into his truck and peeled out and took off all over the place. Because he had a bad temper. But I don't... She said he never hit her. But then again, she had a bruise or two on her face. 
you know, and I'd asked her and she said, well, that was an accident. He bumped me with his car door on the on the truck or something. And I told him, you know, honey, you can't let people go and do those things. If he did that to you deliberately, you let me know right now because I'll give you some other people you can talk to. Because you don't want no man. There ain't no reason whatsoever a woman can come up with, you know, that she deserves to be hit. You know, because her mom went through a lot of that. And for some reason, you know, they thought they deserved it. There's lots of people that pound on a woman, but that doesn't strike me as a fantasy. There is nothing in here about someone named John. What the hell was... Uh, hang on a second. Okay. Let me see if I can ask Sarah real quick. You know, maybe she remembers his name right off the bat. If not, I'll dig it out of my little suitcase. You know, I, I put it all back. I, I couldn't handle the stress with the rest of the stuff, and I thought my son was going to take care of it. Sarah? What? You remember John's last name? John who? Alyssa's old boyfriend. No, get out of here. Okay, well, it's not urgent. I don't need the information right now, but, you know. No, but what I did when John came over is I had him go through all the stuff and, you know, um, get all those names of the people I'd called, her associates that signed her yearbook and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, because he looked just as surprised as everybody else did that she was gone. Do you remember what type of car he had? He had, um, at that time it was a Chevy truck. I think it was like a 75, I believe, because he was having some trouble with the starter. And I told him what was wrong with it. Somebody took the heat shield off of it. That's what the problem was. Uh, let me see if I can get lucky. Oh, I got the wrong glasses on. That's why I can't see this. I turned into a bitch when you can't see anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you know? You're too damn young. <laughs> uh. Sorry, I didn't mean to crack you. Anyway, I, I know it's got to be in here somewhere. I can, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, you have an answering machine? Anyway, um, if I miss you, I'll give it to you. It's, it's not that big of a deal. I'll look through this stuff again. I try to stay away from it because I'm absolutely frustrated over the whole thing. I mean, that might not be the right attitude to take, but... It's totally understandable. It's the only one I got. If you hear something about this, I would deeply appreciate a call back. We will. And let me give you my new home phone number, because I had to change it. You know, I was getting threatening calls still from this union every now and then. I assume it's them. I don't know who did it. Okay. I don't call it in anymore. I just changed my number. Um, but the new one is... I've still got your number written on my board. I haven't taken it off, because if anything does come up, you're the first person I'm going to call. Great. Who else am I going to call? Like, if Alyssa, which I don't really think this is ever going to happen... Were to show up at my doorstep, you know, because to sit back and hope for that is a fool's journey, or what do they call it, a fool's errand? I know this child better than you guys ever will, and she would have contacted us, just like she called that week after she left. What did she say when she called the week after she left? Oh, it was a real short conversation. She woke me up. I was exhausted because I had been going without sleep. Something in reference to, you gotta leave me alone. And then she started using the MF word and some other stuff. I think it sounded like she was pulling her mouth away from the receiver. Started cursing at me or something. I couldn't tell if she was saying it to me or somebody else, and then the phone went dead. It wasn't a kind of conversation like, you know, an exchange, daddy come get me, or anything like that, you know, which is the stuff I really wanted to hear. I'd like to say that's what she said. I can't remember exactly what it was now, you know. I think I wrote it down somewhere. It's funny, I, I thought I would never forget that. Well, you know the body does some strange things to protect itself. I'm already a basket case, which has nothing to do with Alyssa. You know, to me, I'd like to know, and I'm sorry to even ask this, but if it gets beyond anything with this guy and he's not some wacko nut job, I'd like to know if he's associated with the IBEW. Okay. Will you find that out for me? Yeah, it, it doesn't look like it at this point. They hire people like that. I hope you know that. That's why I sent you those transcripts. 
this guy that they hired for that thing in 78, you know, they'd only hired him a week before he went in there, and he wasn't there to take notes. From what we have so far, it looks like he was in. She was in a car that he was stealing. Hi, and from there, we're not too sure. So we're still trying to find. We don't know which car he stole, who it belongs to. That is basically what we're trying to track down to check out, you know, this guy's story. His story, I assume, is that he stole the car, took her across state lines somewhere, you know, killed her and dumped her. Is that what he's saying? Yes. And he's probably been tied to at least another homicide or he wouldn't be shooting his mouth off about another one. Yes, he is in prison right now. That's what I would assume, you know. Just so you know, I'm no expert, but I am an ex-cop. And once in a while, my brain does start to think that way, or maybe it never stopped thinking that way. I don't know what it is. I don't trust anybody. But either way, you know, I'll have to adjust to this, and of course my family don't want to hear it. I'll get John's last name, I just can't remember it for some reason. That's okay. I took all of Alyssa's stuff and put it in a box and put it out of my sight. It was just too hard. And if you could talk to her sister and see if she can remember anything about her jewelry, if you want, you can tell her that we just need it to put into our NCIC entry. Well, can you see that picture? I don't know if that picture is even clear enough. You know, I've got another copy of it right here. There it is, right there. Hang on a second. Let me get my good glasses so I can see what I got. Uh, Just a minute. Okay. It shows a piece of jewelry, I believe. I just hate it when I gotta use stuff. It's got earrings. She had a truckload of earrings, I know that. Because she was running around with some girls that I busted, you know, for shoplifting stuff. This was okay, you know, with that Japanese thing. It kind of looks like, uh, it's in the picture. I'm trying to see it now. It looks like... Let me look at the one in the hallway. I'm not going to take her picture down, you know? I can't do that. I don't think I've got the same one as you because I don't see any necklace. I just see earrings. The one that says strange, you know, that's the picture I gave him. She's got a, it looks like some type of emblem with a hook on it. I thought it was Japanese representation of the year of the rat or something. That's the one she's got in that picture. You know, she wore it from time to time. Okay, then they must have impounded that. I don't have that picture. You don't have that picture? That's the one that's on all the flyers. And the picture that I have, it doesn't show it. All it shows is earrings, and she has a black t-shirt on, and the rest is cut off. Yeah, they cut the strange off, I guess because she wore t-shirts. I thought I sent you guys a color picture of that. No, you can email it to me if you're able to, though. I'll get my daughter to do it because I don't know how to do all that, Um, but I'll go ahead and tell her to get this sent to you. Let me get your email address. Hang on a second. Okay. All right, I got something to write on. I'll, I'll send you a picture of this. Um, go ahead. It's all lowercase, Aaron, E-R, dot gov. Dot gov. Okay, I'll get Sarah to do that and just send this picture. Is a wallet size okay? Is that big enough for you to see? Oh, yeah, I can blow it up. Okay, she is wearing that pendant that she wore a lot, but she had one of those from her boyfriend, too. But I'm not, I thought that he got that back before they, uh, before she left. I'm trying to remember because I was trying to get her to break up with him because I thought he was too abusive. Because he kept calling her stupid, and, you know, Alyssa was ADD, and I'm trying to convince this kid that even though there were a lot of teachers telling her that she was stupid, you know, that there's nothing wrong with you, honey. You just have a short-term memory. You are not stupid, and you've got a brain, you know, you're just as intelligent as anybody else sitting around you. You just can't remember. And that's hard to teach children who do very poorly on their tests, you know, when the rest of society is saying something to them but I didn't need her boyfriend undermining my trying to keep her built up. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. 
but she thought I was scrutinizing her too much, which which I was, you know. I was following Alyssa when she went to work. I was sitting outside of her place, and maybe that was the wrong thing to do, but I didn't know what else to do, you know. I was scared to death, and her mama was dead, and I just didn't... Uh, I was afraid something was going to go wrong. Maybe when you wish it too much, it does. So either way, I know it was a big issue for her younger sister, and, and like I told her, I said, you know, I don't need to, but I do keep an eye on her just because I'm worried about the IBW. I know nobody thinks unions do shit like that, but I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I'll leave you alone and, and quit rambling. All right. Thank you so much, sir. Bye-bye. But it appears that something happened in that phone call that my father didn't like. Because after calling back and leaving a voicemail to provide Detective Murphy with John's last name, my father calls back and speaks to a victim advocate supervisor. And he complains that Murphy has been speaking to him like a child and adds that he had seen members of the police department giving young girls baggies of drugs. A few weeks later, my father and Murphy exchange a few emails. The police report reads, These were a series of printed email exchanges between Detective Murphy and Mike Turney. These appear to be around the time Mike Turney became aware of the alleged confession by Thomas Heimer. The first email is dated for December 20th, 2006. It reads, Dear Detective Murphy, I apologize for not checking my email sooner, but I didn't know how to use the system and I was relying on my youngest daughter's assistance. This is how she became aware of why you contacted me. She definitely can't handle any bad news about her older sister. So I believe it's best that Alyssa's brother John become the contact person for our family. John has also been in denial, but he agreed to do this the day he and Sarah gave DNA samples. I assume the DNA samples were good and entered into the system. I also cannot remember which state the FBI called from you told me about. Should John fail to communicate, please contact me. I know it's adding more to your caseload, but should he fail, if you could send future information about Alyssa in a sealed letter addressed to me, I would appreciate it. I don't believe Sarah will open it. Murphy responds to this email by saying, I am so sorry to cause any problems. I can only imagine how difficult this is for you and your family. I will be going through John from now on. As for the rest, everything is into the system and fine. And my father responds by saying, Thank you for your concern. This is my most difficult task I have ever endured. Sarah lost her mother when she was four and then her sister. She truly suffers from a feeling of abandonment. Thank you again. There is one more favor I ask. Should the recent information reach the next level of validity, I would like to talk with the local FBI officers conducting the interview. And Detective Murphy answers, I will let you know. Have a very Merry Christmas. But despite my father stating that I became upset after reading these emails, I don't remember that. I remember him talking about mass graves in Mexico, sex trafficking, and he even showed me and Lacey a picture of a reconstruction of a girl whose body had been burnt in a dumpster. But I have almost no memory of Heimer's confession outside of it just existing. And I want to say that I didn't learn about this confession until late 2008, when I became the family contact for the case. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by ZocDoc. If you guys have been following my journey on social media, you know that I am in my Sarah era. After everything I've been through over the last couple years, I'm really just focusing on myself and doing that unapologetically. So I have become that one friend in my friend group that loves to treat myself. A lot of the time that looks like a long bath, a face mask, maybe a special foot soak, but I also knew that I needed to make my health a priority. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. 
ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. What I really liked is that all the doctors have verified reviews from actual real patients. You don't have to just guess if they're good. ZocDoc is how I found my new doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com justice and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoc.com slash justice. ZocDoc.com slash justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. On January 17th, 2007, Detective Murphy receives a call from Agent Jacobs of the FBI. She states that the description of one of Alyssa's rings matched the description of the ring Thomas Heimer described. She further adds that the facts given by Heimer surrounding Alyssa's disappearance appeared to be fairly accurate. On February 27, 2007, Deborah McCarr from the FBI leaves a voicemail for Detective Murphy. Agent McCarr wants to know who, if anyone, is investigating Alyssa Turney's murder. Agent McCarr also states that, quote, Mike Turney has made some inquiries and spoken with some politicians stating that he did not have anyone investigating his daughter's murder. Murphy assures Agent McCarr that she is already working with Agent Jacobs and states that because Alyssa's body has never been recovered, that they are not treating the case as a homicide. And on March 9, 2007, Detective Murphy receives two voicemails, 45 minutes apart, from Brett Cohen of the FBI. Agent Cohen is the supervisor for the Violent Crime Squad. On March 12, Murphy returns his phone calls. The report reads, On March 12, 2007, I spoke with Brett. He wanted to know why Alyssa's case was not being investigated as a homicide. He wanted to know what was going on regarding the information obtained from Thomas Heimer. I informed him it was not a homicide as we did not have Alyssa's body or any indication at this point that Alyssa is deceased. I told him I did not have any information regarding what was happening with Thomas. Brett stated that Mike Turney had been calling and was wanting to have an update on the case. Brett did not know anything about the case. I told Brett he would have to speak with Eileen Jacobs from his bureau who would have the information on Thomas Heimer. And on March 27th, 2007, Detective Murphy speaks to my brother James for the first time. The report reads, 
On March 22, 2007, James Turney left a voice message for me. James stated he is Alyssa's older brother and sort of a father figure. He had seen Alyssa's poster on the web and wanted to know what was happening with the case. James stated that he did not speak with his father, Mike, and did not keep in touch with his other siblings. James asked if he could help in any way. On March 27, 2007, I spoke with James. James stated that he had spoken with Mike. Mike gets very agitated and upset when he speaks about Alyssa's case. James and Mike do not get along. I asked James if he had any further information regarding the jewelry Alyssa was wearing when she disappeared. James stated he was not living at the house at the time Alyssa went missing, but he would get together with the rest of the family and see what he could find out. I told James Mike had not wanted Sarah to know what was going on. He stated that he had just returned from a vacation with Sarah. They had talked about Alyssa, and Sarah did want to know what was going on and did want to help. He would talk to Sarah to see what she could remember. On May 7, 2007, Detective Murphy runs a search for police reports of vans stolen from the bars Heimer claims to have stolen the tan van from. The stolen van was never identified. And on June 6, 2007, my father makes a series of phone calls. The police report describing the audio tape of these calls reads, This is a series of recorded incoming-slash-outgoing phone conversations. Many of them focus on Mike's unhappiness that the city of Phoenix has annexed land near New River. This is where he liked to camp and shoot his guns. Mike wants to find out whether city codes apply to this area now. He calls dozens of people on this. He reaches a woman named Liz at the city office who asks if the land is developed and Mike says it is not. That no one was there, unless someone was secretly buried in the desert. During the same conversation, Mike brings up Alyssa's disappearance and his dissatisfaction with the Phoenix Police Department's investigation. He says that he calls the records department once a month to see if there are any new supplements. He says a nine-year-old could do a better job on the investigation. He also mentions Paul Abbott, saying he's a 23-year-old who had sex with his 17-year-old daughter. In July of 2007, Agent Jacobs asks Detective Murphy for information about Alyssa's shoes. Murphy calls my brother John, who calls me, and I tell John that Alyssa had two pairs of shoes, one gray and white and one red and white, both skater-style shoes, most likely Etnies or Circa brands. On August 1st, 2007, Agent Jacob says Heimer identifies the shoes without hesitation. Murphy writes in her report, quote, Eileen stated that they had a psychiatrist evaluate Heimer. The psychiatrist says Heimer is very intelligent. He could have murdered Alyssa. The psychiatrist said approximately 75% of what Heimer says is true. Eileen stated they would be giving Heimer a polygraph test and ask him if he has murdered others. In an audio tape recovered from December 12, 2007, my father is speaking on the phone and mentions seeing a bomb in our neighborhood. There is no further description and the report doesn't mention if my father reported this to law enforcement. On May 13, 2008, my father speaks with Agent Jacobs of the FBI. The report is lengthy and covers much of what we already know about the Heimer confession. But some interesting comments are made including our father telling Agent Jacobs the following about Detective Murphy. She's a real pretty woman who started out on a prostitution ring to become a detective. She really isn't. She's fairly low on the investigating abilities. Mike Turney wants Agent Jacobs to ask the convict if he has ever worked for the IBEW. 
Mike then adds that he has a transcript showing the union hires felons. Jacobs goes on to confirm that there is no association between Thomas Heimer and the union, and that the majority of the information he gave about Alyssa appears to be information gathered through the media coverage her case has obtained. Jacobs then requests all handwritten items left behind by Alyssa for comparison to the runaway note. She also states that she was unaware that Alyssa had called from California a week after her disappearance. And she reiterates that Heimer did not claim to have picked up Alyssa from California, to which our father quickly replies that he knows this, and suggests that Paul Abbott gave Alyssa the ride to California and back to Arizona. And he adds that Abbott, quote, took poor little Detective Murphy and made a fool out of her. On June 12, 2008, our father calls the Phoenix Police Department and speaks to victim advocate Charmaine. He informs her that he will no longer be communicating with the Phoenix Police Department, but only with the victim advocate's office. The next day, on June 13, 2008, Detective Murphy receives a call from a man named Rodney stating he has more information about Alyssa. The report reads, Rodney stated that he used to date Mike's son, Rhett Turney. Rhett said he and his brother James were talking, and they think Mike did something to Alyssa. She had accused him of molesting her. Rodney also says that Mike talked about killing people. Quote, Rodney added that he heard Mike talking a lot about the IBEW. Mike said he had killed a few people. He asked Rodney for a silencer for a 9mm handgun. He said he had used one twice before, but left it in the desert somewhere. Mike asked both Rhett and Rodney for this. Mike added that a few of the Brotherhood workers were, quote, no longer with us. Rodney stated that Mike did have a lead on Alyssa and went to California to look for her. Mike said he thought maybe the IBEW had taken care of her. On July 7, 2008, our father calls Congressman John Shaddock's office to complain about how the Phoenix Police Department is handling Alyssa's case. But the gentleman he complains to asks my father why he isn't happy that the case is finally receiving attention. And my father states that he only wants the topic of the convict confessing to Alyssa's murder resolved, and that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has begun investigating him, and that they've gone to his son James for documents, and that he knows James is a troublemaker. The gentleman says maybe the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children will find something useful. My father replies, visibly upset, stating, quote, Not by calling my family, they're not. And that same day, my father calls the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and leaves a message stating that he wants to focus on the convict confession and, quote, get to that objective without dealing with other issues. After this, he calls Charmaine at the Victim Advocate Center for the Phoenix Police Department. And it appears that by this time, I had taken over the duties for being the family contact person for Alyssa's case, because my father states that I am unable to handle the responsibility, and that I crumpled to the ground and began crying over this stress, another event that I have no memory of. My father adds that he now believes Alyssa's boyfriend is not involved with her disappearance, because he had come to the house to speak with him several days after Alyssa was gone. He also states that Alyssa took $1,200 from him, not the $300 she had claimed to take in the note. On August 1st, 2008, my father makes quite a few phone calls regarding Alyssa's case. He begins by again calling Congressman Shaddag's office, and he complains that members of the Phoenix Police Department are sitting in cars across from his house. 
He then calls Charmaine at the victim advocate's office and complains that the Phoenix police is mocking him and impeding the investigation. And then he calls Congressman Shattuck's office again and leaves a voicemail asking if there have been any updates regarding Alyssa's case. And he complains that the police were asking his kids for documents regarding Alyssa. After this, he proceeds to call the victim advocate's office again. He requests that the Phoenix Police Department only ask him for documents pertaining to Alyssa's case and to not ask his children. And he adds that his son James is a troublemaker and they haven't had contact for five years. After this call, my father calls Charmaine from that same office directly, but hangs up when he gets her voicemail. He then proceeds to call back the main line and asks when Charmaine is expected back in the office. My father then calls Agent Jacobs at the FBI, and he says he's not doing well. He complains about the case and says he hasn't been able to sleep due to the stress. He also states, quote, I've got secrets, mainly about my children who have confided in me. This Alyssa thing has made it so I don't have a family anymore. And in the last call of the day, my father calls back Congressman Shattuck's office and leaves a voicemail stating that he spoke to the FBI. And around this time, Sergeant Brian Chapman from the Phoenix Police Department receives the following email from Maureen at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That email reads, Brian, still trying to get a number where I can reach John Turney. I left a message on his cell. Negative results. I have spoken with Sarah twice, but she seems a little distant when speaking with me. She also has not, as yet, sent me a copy of her sister's runaway note. If possible, I also need the phone number for Michael Seth Turney. Mike Sr. called this office yesterday, but we were all out at a case conference, so no one spoke with him. As a result of different interviews and the description of Alyssa's room at the time of her disappearance, I am leaning towards a feeling that Dad had more to do with this than first thought. However, due to his mental state and his delusional behavior, it is unlikely that any statement he made at this time could be taken as fact, whether or not he is involved. I know this is not your only case, but a wrap-up and final recommendations from this end will be done tomorrow. Thanks, Maureen. Sergeant Chapman then asked Charmaine from the Victim Advocates Department to follow up and gather the items requested. And on August 7, 2008, Charmaine writes an email back to Maureen. Maureen, I tried to call both numbers I have for you yesterday. I have a copy of the note that Alyssa left. Sarah sent it to me. Plus, I have a couple pages from her notebook that she was writing her name in. I spoke with Sarah this a.m. She gave me a number for her brother, John. She said he is not returning anyone's phone calls. It was around this time that we meet Detective Stuart Summershoe and Detective William Anderson from the Phoenix Police Department. And for the first time ever, they actually began to investigate leads not provided by my father. And they began conducting interviews of those who knew Alyssa. And the first person they interviewed was me. On September 8, 2008, I receive a message from Detective Summershoe through a website I created to feature Alyssa's case. And two days later, on September 10th, Detective Summershoe and Detective Anderson interview me in person at the Bureau of Family Investigations. It was a long interview, at least a few hours. They offered me soda and would periodically leave the room and return to ask me the same questions in different ways. And I tell them everything I had been led to believe— Alyssa was wild and had a learning disability. She left a note and we never saw her again. I stood up for my father and told them that I thought he was a good man, which at the time was the truth of what I thought. 
They also asked me to rewrite the note found in Alyssa's room on the day she disappeared. Overall, I just remember being exhausted, but the detective seemed nice. But apparently, during this meeting, my father grows quite concerned, and he calls Charmaine from the victim advocate's office and says he's worried because I've been gone for three hours, and he proceeds to ask her questions about the new detectives on Alyssa's case. But also during that meeting, the detectives ask if they can come to our home and go through Alyssa's belongings, to which I replied we had a shed containing Alyssa's items and invited them to come look. And two days later, they were there. The report of this visit to our home is 10 pages long. It outlines the entire ordeal. It was Detective Summershoe and Detective Bruja. The beginning of the report outlines their expectations and explains that I told them that there was a shed full of Alyssa's items. But in reality, our father had only let them look through two small plastic tubs containing her items, and that many of the items appeared to be mine and not Alyssa's. The report states, quote, The two tubs were a disappointment if they represented all that was retained of Alyssa Turney. They ask if they may take both tubs, and my father and I both express concerns over the items not being returned to the family, and ultimately, they only took Alyssa's yearbooks. My father did not shy away from speaking with the detectives. They discussed Alyssa's educational needs, child protective services, Alyssa's boyfriend, my uncle James, Paul Abbott, my father's past, and he even shows the detectives a transcript relating to a 1978 shooting that he states was tied to the union. They even discussed my father's recollection of the day Alyssa disappeared. The report goes on to describe this conversation, stating, quote, The conversation with Mike Turney was very disorganized and jumped from topic to topic randomly. Mike was difficult to direct and even more difficult to keep on track. During this visit to our home, they asked my father to make a date and come to the station to speak with them formally. But my father declines, stating that he had a bad history with the police. On September 15, 2008, my father calls Detective Anderson. During this conversation, Anderson asks if he can come by the house and get some items that I had mentioned to him, including a list of Alyssa's friends. But my father states that he can just fax that to them, along with one of the contracts that he created for Alyssa. And my father goes on to ramble on a variety of topics, including stating that Summershoe and Anderson were doing a good job with Alyssa's investigation and he reiterates that he won't go down to the station for a formal interview. He also randomly mentions that prostitution is distasteful to him, saying, quote, I'm just not into it. It's like bondage or slavery to me. And on that same day, 11 members of the Phoenix Police Department attend a meeting regarding the Alyssa Turney case. It is announced that Detective William Anderson will be spearheading the investigation and he will be assisted by Detective Stuart Summershoe, as well as a few other detectives who will act as support for case needs. And they spare no time in getting to work on Alyssa's case. That same day, they request all records pertaining to the 2006 Heimer confession. However, Summershoe is told that the confession was deemed false and that all the people Heimer claimed met Alyssa couldn't confirm that and they believe the confession was purely for attention. Summershoe also calls the mother of Alyssa's boyfriend, John. She was surprised to hear that Alyssa was still missing, and she says that the last time she spoke with our father, he claimed Alyssa ran off to California, and that John was heartbroken. 
and she goes on to discuss how her father would call John and tell him that Alyssa was cheating on him and sleeping with other men. And two days later, Detective Summershoe interviews John. John states that he and Alyssa met in a history class when they had a group project together, and that Alyssa was his first serious girlfriend. He says he never saw her smoke pot or drink, but that she talked about it. He said Alyssa had no signs of ADD, was emotionally even-keeled, and not impulsive. He also said she was street-smart enough to avoid people who would do her harm. John goes on about how Alyssa was in the preschool class and loved kids. He said that she was friendly and happy, except for when she was at home with her stepfather. John says Alyssa did not like her stepfather because he was so controlling. And John goes into further detail about this. John said that Alyssa had expressed hatred for her stepfather. He said that she often repeated, I hate my dad, I don't want to live at home. But John states that she did not talk about running away. But she did talk about turning 18 so she could get away. John says the only stress in Alyssa's life was her stepfather. He also says that in the middle of their relationship, Alyssa told him about our father attempting to sexually abuse her. He said Alyssa was crying and very upset when she told him. He said that he tried to mess around with her when she was in a car. John didn't ask for any more detail, but urged Alyssa to tell someone. He states Alyssa claims to have told one of her brothers. He further explains that our father would leave audio recorders in Alyssa's room to record them. Detective Summershoe asks if our father ever, quote, insinuated himself into his and Alyssa's relationship. And John says, yeah, two different times our father pulled him aside and said that he saw Alyssa with other guys. John says he thought he was just saying this to get them to break up. John also discusses the day Alyssa disappeared. His statements about the timeline for that day are already built into episode 5. However, he says that the night of May 17, 2001, he got a call from our father that he was looking for Alyssa. But he didn't mention the note or the possibility that Alyssa ran away. And that night, John even drove around looking for Alyssa himself for hours, something that Alyssa's family didn't even do for her. And a few days after Alyssa was gone, John came to our home, and he says that's when our father said that she ran away and showed him the note. And he thought the note checked out. He says our father and him went into Alyssa's room, and nothing seemed odd. He adds that none of her things were taken, not even items that he knew Alyssa loved. He also says he might have seen her backpack in the room, but can't remember. But after this visit, my father grew distant and stopped talking to John. But John was persistent. A few weeks later, he calls our father, and our father gives John a phone number and says it's the number of the aunt Alyssa ran away to. And John calls the number repeatedly with no answer. He says he was heartbroken about Alyssa and didn't date again for a few years. And he states, if Alyssa had not gone missing, that they would have stayed together and started a family. Summershoe asks John what he thought happened to Alyssa. And John states, quote, I think her stepdad did something ridiculously terrible to her. On September 18, 2008, Sergeant Chapman and Detective Anderson, along with other officers, conduct a canvas of our neighborhood, going door-to-door to speak with our neighbors about Alyssa. And they make a surprise visit to our home to make my father aware of this canvas. 
But this time, my father doesn't invite them in and steps onto the front porch while closing our front door behind him. Anderson makes a note that my father appeared neatly groomed compared to his disheveled appearance in the meeting from a few days prior. Anderson also introduces my father to Sergeant Chapman, to which my father responds, quote, Gentlemen, I'm impressed. They proceed to ask my father again about his recollection of the day Alyssa disappeared. Detective Anderson notes that my father stumbled with his answer, mentioned that he was shopping for camera parts, and proceeds to inform them that if there is no resolution to Alyssa's case by November, that he would be taking legal action against the department. And after this encounter, my father calls Charmaine from the victim advocate's office and explains what just happened, and stated he wants to know where all of this is going with the investigation. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. On September 22nd, my father calls Detective Anderson. He states that I'm not doing a good job communicating with him about the case. He also states that there was an explosion in our neighborhood and that the security camera on our home didn't capture anything from the day Alyssa disappeared. On September 23, 2008, Detective Summershoe connects with Agent Jacobs from the FBI. She informs him that Heimer was not polygraphed on Alyssa's case, but was for another and failed. She goes on to state that he confessed to 21 homicides, but not one confession resulted in charges. However, she also states that Heimer picked Alyssa out of a photo lineup, but Jacobs says that due to the California phone call, that she believed Heimer could not have done it despite Heimer having, quote, detailed information about her. Jacobs also reports that, quote, Michael had been quite aggressive in trying to get the FBI to take action in this case, including contacting congressmen. Jacobs says she will send Summershoe the documents that Michael sent her. And on that same day, Detective Anderson also interviews my brother Rhett's ex-boyfriend, Rodney. In addition to reiterating what he had already told the police, Rodney also states that my brother Rhett and James both believed that our father killed Alyssa, that there was lie in our home, that Rhett would get high and cry and confess his feelings about this incident to Rodney, and that Rhett was so afraid of our father that he wouldn't even travel with him alone. Rodney goes on to say that in March of 2007, he visited our home and our father had Molotov cocktails. Rodney also admits to stealing two out-of-state license plates for my father as well as helping him obtain a fake driver's license. 
While Anderson was interviewing Rodney, Detective Summershoe interviews my brother James on the same day. James states that he was living in New York when Alyssa disappeared, and that Alyssa did not have a learning disorder. He also reports having seen Alyssa about a month prior to her being gone. He says that they went for a walk, and said that, quote, She grew hysterical, and said that she was really unhappy, tired, and scared. She wanted to get out of the house. He said that she was sobbing. He says that at this time, he offers for Alyssa to live with him, and she said she would think about it. James was unsure as to whether Alyssa had been sexually abused or not. However, James does explain that he's confused and has doubts about many aspects of Alyssa's disappearance, including the note she left behind in the phone call from a week later. And he admits that he believes Alyssa is dead. Summershoe asks James how he thought Alyssa died, and James says, quote, I have no idea. I try not to think of it, to be honest with you, but there are just too many things that don't make sense. He goes on to say that Alyssa running away was at the bottom of his list of possibilities and says, quote, I think something happened to her in the house. Summershoe asks who would be responsible, and James responds, quote, I don't even know. I can't put it into words. Summershoe asks if he believes it was an intruder, to which James says no. James goes on to remember our father threatening to commit suicide for his entire life, beginning when James was just six years old. And he tells Summershoe that our father has a child with his second wife, Carol, that he never acknowledged. On September 24, 2008, Detective Anderson speaks to my father's former psychiatrist, Dr. Matson. Matson is happy to answer his questions. He states that our father is troubled due to his issues with the union, and despite my memory being quite different on this topic, Matson states that he only met Alyssa one time, but that our father appeared to have a good relationship with her. Anderson asks Matson if he'd be willing to come down to the station for an interview, in which he agrees. However, the next day, Matson leaves Anderson a voicemail stating that he has to rescind his offer to be interviewed at the request of my father. After this, my father proceeds to write Detective Anderson a lengthy email expressing his concern over contacting his former physician and the privacy of his medical records. Anderson replies stating that he was contacting Dr. Matson in an attempt to clarify Alyssa's condition and to discuss what he remembers about the disappearance. Anderson also clarifies that my father is not the subject of this investigation and states, quote, I am aware of the emotional impact that the loss of a child has on family members, and I do not seek to aggravate you with repeated questioning. That being said, I do have a duty to Alyssa, and I intend to find her. On that same day, my father receives another email from Detective Anderson, in which he describes Alyssa as, quote, dangerously socially incompetent, to which my father becomes wildly offended by and apparently expresses his concerns to me. Unfortunately, I don't have access to the email from this exchange, but I do have the email that I wrote Detective Anderson after this conversation. Hi, Detective Anderson. I'm sure you know that my father is upset about some of the terminology used in your last email. I just wanted to let you know that I am here anytime for your questions or concerns. You can always go through me to get an answer to a question that only my father would know if that makes it easier for you. I just want to get a resolution to my sister's disappearance, 
and to thank you for your hard work. I know you guys are putting a lot of time into this. Sarah Turney. And on this same day, the detectives had set a time to come get the original note found in Alyssa's room, surveillance from the day Alyssa disappeared, and video of the fight between her and her boyfriend. However, when they came to the house, I answered the door, and my father only provided video from the fight, stating that he was too angry to speak with them after Anderson's email. Over the course of a few months, I actually became quite close with the detectives. Although I'm sure they were tactically gaining trust with me, I think they genuinely cared about Alyssa and about me. We discussed my favorite movie, they came to our home and pet my dogs, and I even interviewed Detective Anderson for my college newspaper. However, my father began to complain that being the family contact person was too much for me and was very upset about me having to rewrite Alyssa's note. But I think I knew my father was becoming overwhelmed by the investigation because Detective Anderson and I exchange emails on this subject. Anderson writes me a lengthy email apologizing for upsetting my father and writes the following. The case file indicated that you were the main contact for the investigation, so I requested an interview with you first. You were very forthcoming with information and very helpful. I apologize for the length of the interview, but honestly, I am accustomed to such in-depth conversations. I find them necessary and often request follow-up interviews. The sessions are not meant to stress you out, but rather to solicit useful leads and quality information. You know Alyssa. I don't. Having you recreate Alyssa's note was a difficult decision for me to make, but it was necessary. In my opinion, the original detective should have authenticated the note long ago. I'm sorry to have to put you through it again, but as a professional, I have a duty to look at all the possibilities. And I respond to this email by stating, Detective Anderson, I'm assuming from the last two emails that my father has been in contact with you. Please don't take what he has to say about my emotions as truth. It seems he is telling you how he thinks I should feel or might be feeling. Be assured that I am strong, and rewriting the note, etc. did not bother me as it did my father. I understand this is a part of the process, and I am perfectly capable of handling the job. Truthfully, I don't care what you say about my sister, as long as it helps solve the case. I have spoken with my father about this matter and he assures me that he will not be contacting you about information trying to protect me or my emotional state, because to me, this is just wasting time that could be spent on the case. I am here to get to the bottom of this case, and I don't care what it takes to get there. Sarah Turney. It was apparently a very busy day for Detective Anderson, because he also speaks to my brother Rhett for the first time. Detective Anderson brings up what Rodney had reported to them, Rhett states that him and Rodney were not together and that he was upset due to a bad breakup. Rhett denies getting our father stolen license plates, a silencer, or false identification. He claims he only knew Alyssa was missing when he came to Christmas in 2001 and asked where she was. Rhett also denies any allegations that her father sexually abused Alyssa. On this same day, the police also attempt to retrieve Alyssa's medical records from Deer Valley School District but they are informed that the records are destroyed after five years and were no longer available. And during this time, my father again makes countless phone calls to complain about the way the Phoenix police was handling the investigation. I must have five pages filled with descriptions of him making phone calls. 
He calls the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the mayor, Charmaine from the Victim Advocate's Office, the chief of police, his psychiatrist, Dr. Harrington, Congressman John Shattuck's office, the Center for Disease Control, the Attention Deficit Disorder Association, and he even calls his pharmacy to ask if the police had visited them. During his call to Charmaine, he's quoted as saying, Is this a worldwide search for Alyssa or an attempt to verify the convict's story? He also informs her that if he believes the Phoenix Police Department is investigating him, that he will take legal action. He adds that he has nothing to hide, but will not be speaking with Detective Anderson any longer, and that the Phoenix police were attempting to negotiate getting his medical records in exchange for the records pertaining to Thomas Heimer's confession. He also adds that it's a shame that the police didn't ask my brother John to rewrite Alyssa's note as they had me do, because in his opinion, John is a talented artist who would have been easily able to forge the note. He also proceeds to tell her a story that I can most definitely tell you did not happen. He states that I was in complete distress over this confession from Thomas Heimer, and that I grabbed my father by both arms and said, kill the bastard. And on September 29th, 2008, the Phoenix Police Department arranges for the city of Phoenix to issue my father a new trash can in order for the police to confiscate the current trash in our bin and go through it, but nothing of interest was obtained. On October 1st, 2008, my father makes a phone call to Congressman Shattuck's office and states that a bomb was detonated in our neighborhood. He proceeds to state, quote, newer cars don't blow up like old ones. And on October 17th, 2008, my father requests that his psychiatrist, Dr. Harrington, write a letter to the Phoenix Police Department requesting that they no longer contact him. He states that although they have a confession for Alyssa's murder, they are continuing to harass him. And like I mentioned, Detective Anderson and Summershoe were very busy between September and December of 2008. During this time, they interviewed a ton of people including Alyssa's friends Katie and Chris, Paul Abbott again, my father's first wife Cheryl, my father's second wife Carol, who confirms the existence of the child my father never acknowledged. She claims that my father threatened to take the child away if she fought for child support. So, she didn't. Alyssa's biological father, Stephen Strom, and his wife Karen, our aunts Teresa and Lynette, my mother's best friend Linda, my uncle James, And they also interview my brothers Mike and John, who tell a very similar story to mine. Alyssa was wild, our father was protective, but it came from a good place, and we don't know what happened to Alyssa. But, do you guys remember the runaway note? Alyssa claims to have taken $300 from her father, but John says he remembers Alyssa taking that $300 and confessing to it before she even disappeared. And on December 9th, 2008, the police received my father's doctor's note requesting he not be questioned any further by the detectives. Dr. Harrington's letter reads, I am writing on behalf of Mr. Turney as his attending psychiatrist to request that he is no longer contacted by the Phoenix Police Department with regards to the case investigating the disappearance of his daughter, Alyssa Turney. He has designated a contact person within his family, Sarah Turney and becomes inconsolably upset by phone calls and other forms of contact regarding his daughter due to a serious psychiatric condition. He reports to me that he has provided all pertinent information regarding the loss of his daughter, both verbally and in written form, to the detectives investigating this case. Thank you in advance for your generous consideration of this most delicate matter. 
Sincerely, Dr. Harrington. On that same day, I receive a phone call from Detective Anderson. He informs me that there's been a development in the case and asks if I can come down to the station to speak with him and Detective Summershoe on the 11th. And on December 11th, 2008, I give my father a hug and a kiss on the cheek before my live-in boyfriend and I drive to my meeting with the police. I remember driving down the freeway, being so excited for a possible break in this case. I really thought that maybe they found Alyssa. Next time on Voices for Justice. Your father's a, a big part of this investigation. We, we talked to all these people. He's, he's the one person that won't talk to us. Yeah. And he's the last person to see Alyssa. So that's, you know, curious. We're coming to the point that we're running out of, of other leads. She got pulled out early that day? Yeah, your dad pulled her out of school early. Hmm. Okay, you weren't aware of that? Okay. By saying all this, I'm not trying to make you hate your dad. I'm not trying to make you think a certain way. I'm just telling you what we've learned. No, I, I want to know. Okay. And, you know, this is what we've learned, so I'm, I, I want to you know, be honest with you and present yeah. it to you. Hey, guys. I have to extend a huge thank you to Heather Wright for lending me her voice and helping me read the transcript of the call between my father and Detective Murphy. Heather hosts some really awesome podcasts, including Status Pending, where she and her co-host created a three-part series about Alyssa. But Heather also creates Ohio 88 and Nature vs. Narcissism. So if you haven't checked out her podcast, definitely go give them a listen. Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.